Now, when we say that God is just, we mean he's perfectly righteous in everything that he does. God is just in that he shows no partiality, as Peter will affirm in Acts 10. He acts perfectly, righteously, without any partiality towards all of his creation. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, Have We Angered God? Pastor Carl will be preaching from the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, as he unpacks the nature of God's wrath by addressing the biblical theology of the wrath and anger of God in today's message. Please join us in Romans, chapter 1, verse 18, as we begin. Will you take God's word on this Lord's Day, please, and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 1 where I hope to ask and answer the question, have we angered God? If you're new to the Bible, right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books, you'll come to the book of Acts. That's a record of the first 30 years of church history. And then you will come to Romans. Now, we are living in days where the entire world is in a crisis. And it could, in many ways, very much well define our future. A tiny microscopic virus is doing what wars and political maneuvers could not do, which helps us to see just the scenario painted in Scripture that someday there will be a one-world leader and a one-world government. There is growing political chaos across the world. There is a financial collapse in many countries, far worse than what we are seeing in America as unemployment continues to grow. And so many people are in despair and confusion and even fear. But again, this will someday, you can see this scenario, see how God could set the table through a virus like this or whatever he may choose to use to bring about that coming world leader we know as the Antichrist. Now this morning, I hope to ask and answer really a number of questions. Many of you have written me and asked me, is there some prophetic significance to this virus? And what does God really think about America today? And since this virus is not simply bound to our shores, we might ask, what does God really think about the world today and what is happening? Well, we're going to use Romans 1 as our launch pad, but we're going to use a number of passages from both the Old and New Testament to answer the question, have we angered God? But let's begin by reading a portion of the text from Romans 1, beginning now in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of, his world, of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile, futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. 
Now, before we dig into the meaning and the application of these verses, I think it would be helpful to make sure we have in our thinking a biblical theology of the wrath and the anger of God. It will help us, I think, to be far more discerning over what is really unfolding in our world today. Now, the Bible is filled with hundreds of references to God's justice, God's righteousness, God's perfection, and God's holiness. And without being true, any violation of those attributes would demand adjudication, just as it would in a human court of law. So we need to ask, have we angered God? And in that question, there is an assumption that God can get angry, and I know that's offensive to many people. One lady wrote us yesterday, she took great offense that on one of our campuses in Aiken County that we would even have that on the marquee that it was not a good thing in her mind. Well, listen, we want to understand, does God get angry? And I can promise you, you will never understand the love of God until you understand the wrath of God. So there on your note-taking outline, we want to first address understanding the nature of God's wrath. Let's think together about understanding the nature of God's wrath. Again, there's hundreds of references to his holiness, his perfection, his righteousness, his justice. So let's, under the first heading, consider God is holy and therefore he is wrathful. He's holy, therefore he is wrathful. The prophet Isaiah gets a glimpse through a vision of the throne room of God, and he hears the song of the seraphim, and they crowd, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, why do the holy seraphim three times over repeat God is holy? Wouldn't it be enough just to say that God is holy? Well, if you know a little bit about Hebrew, you know that when a word is repeated, it's repeated for intensification. To say that the Lord is holy says something, to say the Lord is holy, holy says even more. But to say holy, holy, holy is the Lord is to declare his holiness to the highest possible degree. So what does it mean when it says God is holy? Well, in its root meaning, the Hebrew word, much like the Greek word, means simply to be set apart. It can describe a person or a thing that is set apart for God's purposes. And so, as an object, if it's holy, it's called into sacred service. If it's a person, and so in the New Testament, the Haggaioi, the saints, literally the holy ones. We who have met Christ, who have been credited with his righteousness by grace through faith, are called saints. We're called holy ones. And so it forces us to ask a question, in what sense is God holy? In what sense is he set apart? Well, he's set apart from his creation. The Lord God Almighty who created this world exists outside of his creation. Listen, if all of creation dissolved today, God would remain. He's set apart from humanity. He's set apart from all that he has made because he is divine. God is not some superman. He's not some ultimate man. God is not merely smarter than us. He's not merely stronger than us or older than us. No, God is beyond anything that you could think of on the human chart. He is divine, and we are human. And yet, because we are made in the image of God, we're compatible in having a relationship with the living God. Now, please know, unlike, say, pagan Mormonism, 
where they have literally hundreds and millions of God. There's nothing about Jesus Christ in their religion. It's more like Hinduism. We as believers are made in the image of God. In fact, everyone is made in God's image, and therefore we are compatible to have a relationship with the Lord. And this, among other reasons, is why Jesus could take on our humanity. He could become a man. He could add to his divinity perfect, sinless humanity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And so God's power is a holy power. God's love is a holy love. God's wisdom is a holy wisdom. God's holiness sets him apart from everything and all of his creation. It's part of who he is and all that he does. And so for God to overlook unholiness, for God to blink at sin, would cause him to topple from his throne of justice. So if we're to understand the nature of God, first and foremost, we must know because God is holy, God is wrathful. But secondly, God is just, and therefore he is wrathful. God is not only holy, he is just, and therefore he is wrathful. Again, hundreds of verses throughout both Testaments affirm that God is both holy and just. Now, when we say that God is just, we mean he's perfectly righteous in everything that he does. God is just in that he shows no partiality, as Peter will affirm in Acts 10. He acts perfectly, righteously, without any partiality towards all of his creation. And so God describes his justice both towards the saved and the lost. For instance, his justice towards the saved. The writer of the Hebrews says, for God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name and having ministered and then still ministering to the saints. Or in reference to the lost, the apostle Paul says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. And so in speaking of the just wrath of God, Paul says, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted, to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. In Psalm 89, 14, God describes his throne as being built on justice and righteousness. The psalmist writes, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. So justice, well, it's important to all of us. Why is it important to you? Because you are made in the image of God. And even if you've never read or studied the Bible, Romans 2.15 tells us that God's law was written into your heart. It's, it, it's a reflection of what his character is like. Think about it. Imagine Adolf Hitler had been caught alive and brought before a human court of law. And so for the next nine hours, they read his crimes. But at the end, the judge says, I see what you've done. You've murdered millions of people but I think you've learned your lesson. He takes the gavel, he slams it down, and he says, not guilty, you're free to go. In such a scenario, 
immediately in your heart there would be there would rise up a sense that this is an awful injustice that this man who murdered millions should be punished. Why do you even think that way? Why do you know the difference between right and wrong, what's just and what's unjust? Because you're made in the image of God and written into your spiritual DNA is the law of God. Now, you've heard it said that all truth is God's truth because everything that's in the universe, whether it's a mathematical formula or some scientific law or some relationship boundary, all comes from God. Uh, We don't determine truth. All we do as humans is discover truth, the truth that already exists. All the truth that exists comes from God and it displays his character. And among other aspects, it displays that he is just, he is righteous. Now there are people who are teaching us today that we evolved out of the pond scum. The evolutionist argues that, you know, and even, by the way, the theistic evolutionist says that, you know, God just either used the process of evolution or that there is no God. And, and so they have to come up with some explanation as to how this whole universe came into being. But listen, that's not the truth. That is a lie from the pit of hell as we will examine in just a few moments. And so when God created Adam, and Adam was a direct creation of God, There were no humans on the earth. It was not out of the glue into the zoo that became you. No, God directly created Adam and Eve. And he created them for his own purposes and pleasure. And he richly blessed them and he created them with a free will. And you see that man was given a choice. He had the opportunity to express free will when God said, then the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day, meaning the very day you eat from it, you will surely die. And Adam immediately died that day on the inside. He died spiritually, began to die physically. Now we're born dying, getting older. And if the problem's not fixed before we leave this world, we will experience a third kind of death, eternal death. Now in God's first command, what we call the creation mandate, he said this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That was a commandment of blessing. But here in the second commandment, God gave a commandment of warning. He said, please don't. He commanded them, he warned them what would happen if they disobeyed. But they, like us, have said, we will do as we please. And so man has committed high treason against our creator. And so justice demands action. God must step in. And so to satisfy his justice without destroying man, God did something. The first death in all the universe takes place. God kills some innocent animals. He makes coats of skin. And he clothes Adam and he teaches them an example by typology that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin that sin deserves death, and so God clothes them with these animal skins. Abel got it, Cain rebelled against it. But since animal blood cannot ultimately atone for man's sin, God, thousands of years later, remaining just because he loved us, provided the very one who would become the substitute. 
And so in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, He, meaning the Father, made him, meaning Jesus, who knew no sin. Jesus was sinless. He was tempted in every way as we, yet without sin. The one who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. As he hung there on Golgotha, he bore our sin in his body on the cross. The one who knew no sin became sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So throughout the ages, all of us have said, we will do as we please. And God says, your sin deserves death. For the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins must die. But God in his grace and his mercy sent his son to take that penalty for us. Peter will write that Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Why? So that he might bring us to God. And so because God's justice is satisfied through a substitute, he can pronounce us not guilty. God is infinitely just, and God is infinitely love. And the love and justice of God met there on a cross. And so God can forgive us. He doesn't have to hold our sins against us. And so Isaiah, the prophet, quoting God, says, I, even I, and the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember, I'll not remember your sins. The writer of the Hebrews, by the way, quotes a portion of that verse. Your sins and your lawless deeds I will remember no more. It's not that God has a case of divine amnesia, but he doesn't hold them against you. Why? Because they have been justly paid for in a substitute. And so God pronounced the death burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus as the payment for our sin. The one who was sinless was cursed on our behalf. Paul will write, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now don't get lost in this forest of theology. The first heading that we're considering is we are understanding the nature of God's wrath. God's wrath is a violation of his holiness it is a violation of his justice. And God being both just and holy is also loving and merciful, and he provided a way of escape. Without justice, though, sin would run rampant, and no one would want to live in a world where there was no justice. Evil would reign. And so God says of his people in Micah 6 and verse 8, he summarizes three qualities that he wants reflected in us. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. Again, if God overlooked sin, if God blinked and winked at sin, he would be less than holy. And so God's anger burns towards sin, and if you have created a God who can never get angry. You're denying the very way God has made you when righteous anger rises up in your heart and you are distorting the meaning of the cross of Christ. Now, beyond understanding the nature of the wrath of God, let's think for a moment about understanding the expressions of God's wrath. Keep in mind that the study of God's attributes and understanding the expressions of his wrath is a rather complex theological issue. If, one, if the one true God is both holy and just, such that his wrath is justified, then how does God show that wrath 
in the world? Well, if you study the wrath of God systematically, you will find there are at least four different expressions to the wrath of God. First, there in your outline, point A, there is the eternal wrath of God. God has a holy hatred for sin. And so there's a future dimension to the wrath of God. We often refer to it as eternal wrath. And so Paul speaks in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10 of the wrath that is to come. He's looking down the corridors of time when Christ will ultimately judge all the living and the dead. We studied this future eternal wrath in the book of Revelation, which we just finished. We're told in Revelation 20, then, the, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You say, Pastor, I was raised in a church where I was told that these descriptions, like a lake of fire, were just symbolic but not real. Well, you were lied to because God's word is very clear that these are real. But even if you were to say they were just symbolic, listen, that means the reality is far stronger. If I take a picture of a sunset, it is symbolic of what I've seen with my naked eye, but the reality is far greater. And if these were just uh, symbols, then the torment and the wrath and the punishment that will follow is far greater, but these are not symbols. God made it very clear that there's coming a day where men will meet him in eternal wrath. In fact, in describing both the righteous and the lost, Jesus said, these will go into eternal, the Greek word is ionion. These will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal ionion life. Now, there are heretics like Rob Bell who said, well, you know, hell is not really forever, and it's an old lie brought up throughout the ages of the history of the church. But I want to remind you that the same word that's used to describe eternal life and eternal punishment is also used to describe the eternal God. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. To say that God is not eternal, then you might conclude that hell is not eternal and heaven is not eternal, but you cannot possibly do it. And so the truth is, is that God is equally glorified in his wrath because it expresses his justice, just as he is glorified in his love that expresses his kindness. People are not extinguished Hell is not burned out. The doctrine of annihilationism that, you know, you're just, it just ends in the grave and that's it is a false doctrine. Do you remember what we studied in Revelation 19 and verse 20? Let me dust off your minds. We're told, and the beast, that's a reference to the Antichrist, and the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two, were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. The first two humans ever to enter the lake of fire is the beast, the Antichrist, and his compadre, the false prophet. And a thousand years later, when the great white throne judgment takes place, where are they? They're still in the lake of fire. Why? Because hell is forever. God never originally made hell for man, he made it for the devil and his angels. And God is clear, he takes no pleasure in sending people to hell. 
But twice over in Revelation 20, it's called the lake of fire. In those verses we just read, and, and it's called the lake of fire and brimstone. Now, Jesus made it clear that this is forever. In fact, Jesus said more about hell than any other single person in all of Holy Scripture. Do you remember that occasion when a rich man died and he died and went to Hades? Not because he was rich, but because he was an unbeliever. In Hades, the Scripture says, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Hell is a fixed place. And so those who say, well, you go to hell and you pay for your sin, kind of like a, a heightened purgatory and then get out of hell, it denies everything that God says concerning the eternality of hell. Jesus in Mark 9, 48 described it as a place where their worm does not die and the fire is never, ever, ever quenched. By the way, that's a quotation from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 66, which reminds us that the doctrine of eternal retribution is not simply a New Testament doctrine. It's taught in the Tanakh in the Old Testament. Sadly today, though, the doctrine of hell has virtually disappeared from evangelicalism, and no one noticed it. If you talk about hell, you're accused of being a fire and brimstone preacher. Well, listen, I believe in fire and brimstone. I also believe in grace and forgiveness, and we need to wed the two together because God does. But listen, hell is a real place. Now, sometimes people use it just as a curse word, or sometimes they use it to describe a horrible event that they're going through. Listen, my hat is off to some of these first responders and these doctors and nurses and people who work in the hospitals caring for the sick. And, and one recently was interviewed on the news and she literally said, this virus is hell. We are living in hell. Now, she may not have been able to find a better word to describe the circumstances that she was going through, but I promise you, it is not hell. It doesn't even begin to compare. Now, there's a second dimension in God's wrath. Beyond the eternal wrath of God, there is the eschatological wrath of God, the eschatological wrath of God. Eschatos is the Greek word for last, ology, the study of. And so when we speak of eschatology, we're speaking of the study of last things. And when we speak of that eschatological wrath, we're speaking of that wrath that will come upon the earth before Christ comes back and before ultimately we enter into eternity. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as Pastor Carl continues his sermon, Have We Angered God? If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program OWF020. Remember, you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling 
or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.